Uh, we, we've been doing this kingdom series on, 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 on the kingdom, <laughs> and uh, with a special emphasis on living the kingdom now, in the moment, staying awake. And I know that that's not a, a real common uh, emphasis. Some of you have been going to church all your life and haven't heard that emphasis on, on living in the now. And I want to explain why I regard this as being so vital. Actually, as I came out of this dark night of the soul that I was in during the summertime, uh, this was the central thing that I came away with, the importance of living in the now, living the kingdom now. Consider this, that Jesus, as we've been proclaiming here this morning, he came to, to, to earth to defeat the devil, to give us victory. He came to give us abundant life. According to the New Testament, when we surrender our life to Christ, he comes and takes residence inside of us. He abides in us, and we abide in him, and he works to live his life through us. So our life becomes increasingly conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ. And the main evidence that Jesus is resident in our life, and that our life is being conformed to his image, is that we love. We're uh, enabled and empowered and motivated to love in a way that goes beyond what an ordinary human is capable of. Our life begins to look like Calvary, where Jesus died for those who were crucifying him. That's why John says that we know that we've passed from, life to, from death into life because of our love. Love is the central sign of kingdom life being present in us. We're to look like Jesus, and we're to acquire the reputation in the world that Jesus had. And we're to have the sort of magnetic quality that Jesus had. When, wherever Jesus went, those who were hungry followed him. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, other sinners, the lepers, all who were rejected by society, they were attracted to him because they were hungry for life, and he manifested life. And what it is to live in the kingdom is to replicate that life, to replicate that love, to replicate that magnetic quality in our life, individually and collectively, and that is the kingdom of God. It always looks like Jesus. Always has a Calvary quality love to it. The domain in which God reigns always is the reign of love. Now here's the thing. If we're honest, and we've got no time to not be honest, if we're honest and frank, we have to admit that our lives don't consistently look like that. In fact, we have to admit that the church as a whole remarkably doesn't look like that. We don't consistently experience kingdom life, and therefore we don't consistently manifest kingdom life, and therefore the church is known for a great many things in our culture, but self-sacrificial, non-judgmental love isn't at the top of the list. In fact, I was reading in, uh, I may have shared this before, but in Tony Campolo's recent book called Speaking My Mind, where he certainly does speak his mind, uh, he cites a study that was done in 2002, which um, surveyed people and had them rate uh, individuals and groups in terms of social respectability, and born-again Christians were to towards the bottom, just one place above prostitutes in terms of social respectability. Now, Jesus was actually still rated rather high. But a born-again Christian church was rated rather low, and what that tells you is that people aren't seeing in the church what they think they see still in Jesus. The kingdom life is not consistently being manifested. Jesus was non-religious and very beautiful to all who were hungry. 
But the church, to a large degree, let's say it out loud, is very religious and not very beautiful to the people who are hungry. There's something basic that we're missing, something profoundly simple that I believe that we're missing. At the core of it, I believe, is that we have, we tend to have, a magical view of Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. There's a widespread assumption that if you just, quote-unquote, pray the sinner's prayer, or, quote, surrender your life to Jesus, or accept Jesus as Lord of your life, that that magically saves you and is supposed to magically transform you. So we have a lot of people who have prayed that prayer and are just sort of waiting around to be transformed as though there's nothing more to do. But that is to treat the sinner's prayer as though it was magic, but it's not. It's a tragically misguided way of looking at the matter. When you, when you surrendered, if in fact you have surrendered your life to Christ and accepted his lordship over your life, what you did when you did that was you made a pledge. You pledged your life to Christ. But now listen to this. The pledge to surrender your life isn't itself the life you pledged to surrender. I want to say that again. The pledge to surrender your life isn't itself the life you pledged to surrender. The actual life you pledged to surrender is the life you live every moment after you make that pledge. Because the only life you have to surrender is the life you live on a moment-by-moment basis. Because life is nothing above a series of moments strung together. Everything else is simply an abstract idea about life. It's not concrete life. Concrete life is lived moment to moment. You can think of it like a marriage. 25 years and three months ago, I stood at an altar looking, my, uh, looking into the gorgeous eyes of my wonderful wife, sweating profusely. And I grabbed her hands, and we had our own vows, and so I said these marvelous poetic vows to my wife. I pledged my life to my wife. But my pledge wasn't itself the life that I promised to her. My pledge didn't magically give us a good marriage. Wouldn't it be nice if that was true? (laughs) The actual life I pledged to my wife was the life I live every moment after I make the pledge. Because the only life I have to give to my wife is the life I live moment by moment because life is nothing over and above a series of moments strung together. The quality of my marriage isn't decided by the sheer fact that I made a pledge. The quality of my marriage is decided by how I live out that pledge moment by moment. The crucial question is not, did I pledge my life to my wife 25 years ago? That's meaningless except in so far as I'm living out that pledge now and now and now. In the same way, to surrender your life to Christ doesn't magically make your life a surrendered life. It just promises that you will surrender your life. The life we pledge to surrender to Christ is the life we live moment by moment. So the question, the crucial question is not, did you once upon a time surrender your life to Christ. The crucial question is, is your life this moment surrendered to Christ? Our pledge is a pledge without content and meaningless, except in so far as we live it out moment by moment. And this, I believe, is the great disconnect. Uh, the, The gulf between the profession of faith and the experience of faith. Why 
There's so much belief, theoretical belief, and yet the reality and the life and the love and the power and the joy of the kingdom is not consistently being manifested in the church. We mistake the pledge of life for the life we pledge. We mistake the pledge of life for the life we pledge. We think that because we promise to surrender our life, that our life is a surrendered life. We think that because we promise to acknowledge Christ as Lord, that in fact Christ is actually Lord of our life. But it's a delusion, except insofar as we're living out that pledge on a moment-by-moment basis. Many Christians have, let's just say it out loud, a theoretical surrendering to Christ, and Christ is theoretically Lord of their life, But 99% of their conscious waking moments are devoid of Christ. Christ just isn't a part of of their life. The way they experience life and the way they frame life is basically the way a non-Christian would frame life. The lordship of Christ is real, except it isn't real, except insofar as it's real this moment. And now this moment, and now this moment. And you may say, well, am am I suggesting that these people aren't saved? I'm not saying that, but that's altogether the wrong question. We're always looking for the bottom line. Will they make it into heaven? Do they have fire insurance? Uh, That's like a person saying, how much can I live uh, with the mindset of a non-married person before my wife will actually divorce me? If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. Something's wrong with the question. What I am saying is this, that insofar as our moment-by-moment life doesn't include Jesus Christ, It's no wonder that we don't manifest the life of the kingdom in our life because life is nothing over and above a series of moments strung together. The reality of the kingdom is missing in our life for the kingdom is real in our life only insofar as we make it real moment by moment. So what matters is not that you pledged your life to Christ 20 years ago or yesterday. What matters is that you're living out that pledge in this moment and in every moment that follows. If you want to live the kingdom and you want to experience that victory that we are talking about and you want to experience the transforming love of Jesus Christ, you have to make this moment a dome in which God is king. That's the kingdom of God. We're to seek first. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it doesn't matter that you sought him first 20 years ago or yesterday. This moment is the only thing that's real. And so the question is, is your heart a kingdom first heart this moment? Are you seeking him first this moment? To live in the kingdom is to live with a consciousness and awareness that the supreme goal of every particular moment is to seek the kingdom of God first. And this is, I believe, what is missing in so many lives. And this is the main task of discipleship. The main task of discipleship. It is as simple as it is profound. You can hear all the sermons you want but it won't do any concrete good except insofar as you apply them concretely to this moment. You can read all the books in the world, marvelous, wonderful information, but all you're going to have is a head full of information about the kingdom. You won't be transformed by the kingdom except insofar as you apply it on a moment-by-moment basis. And you can go to all the conferences that you want and memorize all the Bible verses that you want and go on all the fasts that you want and do all those spiritual disciplines, and that's all wonderful, fine, and good. But it it, it won't do you any good except insofar as this moment is surrendered to Jesus Christ. And now this moment. This is why we have a church as a whole. Thank God for the wonderful exceptions. But we talk so much about the kingdom and theorize so much about the kingdom and debate so much about, about the kingdom, but we never get around to actually doing the kingdom. But the kingdom is to be done first and foremost, and it can only be done in this moment 
and now in the next moment. And that's why I have this passion to drive home the now, the importance of living in the now, because the only thing that is real is now. The past is gone, the future is not yet, but this moment right now is the only thing we have. Is it a kingdom moment for us? Are we framing it with God included in it? I want to get at this another way by talking about an Old Testament passage that relates to Jacob. First, I want to pray. Can I get some people around the auditorium? Now, I'm 15 minutes into my message, and I'm going to preach now. Okay, uh, I need some people to pray for me as, I'm, as it's going forward. Yeah, I need a couple more. I've had this weird stomach pain going on here, so I need a couple more. All right, all right, let's pray. Father, make this a kingdom moment. Oh, yes, Lord, every moment of this message, make it a kingdom message. Lord God, help us to stay awake. And God, may it be transforming in our lives, not just theoretical information, interesting, curious, uh, but rather, Lord, make it something that God puts, installs a mechanism in our brain that keeps us awake throughout this week, every moment of this week, to be aware of your reality, your love to us, and your desire for your love to flow through us, to make us kingdom people, not just theoretically, but really. Have your way, Lord. Open our eyes. Wake us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis chapter 28, it says this. Jacob left Beersheba and went down to Haran. It's Beersheba, by the way, not Bathsheba. Uh, someone last night got that confused. I thought David was the one with Bathsheba. No, this is Beersheba, it's a place. Okay, he came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. The only reason he stayed there was because the sun had set. It was a certain place, no particular place, just an ordinary place. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, nice pillow, and laid down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reaching into heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and the Lord stood beside him. And then Jacob, and a little conversation took place, skipping down a couple of verses. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely, listen to this, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, which simply means he was full of reverence. And he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The house of God and the gate of heaven. Jacob had what is sometimes called in psychology a reframing experience. The metaphor comes from the world of art where you put frames around pictures and as everyone who's in touch with art and in tune with art and things like that, they know that you change the picture by the frame you put around it. My wife and I did this on Friday as we dared to go out into that mass of hysteria and go shopping. We reframed a picture and it's amazing. You put a, a different frame around a picture and it changes the picture, the ambiance of the picture, the texture of the picture, the, the energy of the picture. I'm so artistic. Well, this, we do the same thing with our experiences. We, we, we frame our experience, our past experience, our present experience. We frame it in a certain way. And the way that we frame it determines how we interpret it and, how, and the impact it has on us. Uh, to give you an illustration, I, I grew up... Uh, believing that I was just a very stupid kid. I stuttered a lot, and, and I was in remedial reading, and, and I, I was bored with school. I hated school. I hated books, hated reading, couldn't stand any of it. Uh, and so I, I wasn't a, a real stellar student going through school. And, uh, just, and plus, I was an airhead on top of it, still am. Uh, and the, the whole combination just convinced me that I was a dumb kid. I was told I was dumb. I told, you know, and so you internalize that. Now, around 11th grade, a wonderful teacher of mine in high school named Miss King 
uh, turned me on to philosophy. Uh, I was uh, asking all sorts of questions, and everybody else thought I was just a drug burnout, which I kind of was. But, but the questions I was asking were philosophical questions. And she said, Greg, you're a philosopher. And I said, what? Because a philosopher, you ought to, uh, ought to read a book on philosophy. So I went to the library and just looked up under philosophy and picked out this one book by Eric Hoffer called The True Believer. Anyone read that? Yeah, we got a couple of Eric Hoffer people here. And I, I thought, man, this guy must be doing drugs because he's asking all the same questions I'm asking. Uh, and it just blew me away that somebody would, would be thinking like this. He was unloading these crates from a, sh- uh, from a, a, a ship. That he, that's what he did for a living. But he, he'd go home and write in his journal all these philosophical thoughts, and I loved it. And my brain just became alive. The neurons started to be activated. I've never had a lot of trust in the IQ scores and things like that because I think your intelligence is more a function of what you're interested in than it is just raw material. My brain came alive because finally there was something worth thinking about. And I began to read. I became addicted to reading. The Lord used that to bring me into the Christian faith, and then I discovered you know, theology, and I began to read even more. I went to the University of Minnesota, and I began to get straight A's. But I always, those, those tapes that we internalize at a young age are so hard to get rid of. I still saw myself as stupid. I just thought, well, the U of M is not a very good school, so, you know, this is, is evidence. This is evidence of how the grading curve has gotten so low. It was always a fluke. On the suggestion of a professor of mine, I applied at Yale, and to my amazement, I got in. And I ended up going to Yale. And I was thinking, oh, Yale's not a rinky-dink school. So I, I, I was really, I had this intellectual inferiority complex. My first semester there, I was intimidated. I hardly ever spoke up in class. And there's all these other kids who seem so smart and so learned and so studied. And, and they, some of them had those British accents. Yeah, I was quite so, actually. Yeah. And, and that just sounds smart. You guys from, English sounds smart. And so I was really intimidated. Now, we had this major project at the end of our first semester, this big theology paper we had to write, and I did mine and, and handed it in. And the day that it was supposed to be handed out, they put it in these cubby holes, these little cubes that weren't locked, but it's sort of an honor system that you weren't supposed to read other people's paper. Well, <laughs> I, I went in, I, I had to know, I had to know, what, what's the score here? And so I went r- very early in the morning. And I read my paper, and I got an A+, and he was writing all these great comments over it, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then I checked other people's papers. I figured everyone must be getting an A+. That's just what they do around here. Uh, but to my amazement, uh, other students, a lot, most of them got Bs and Cs, and the guy with the British accent flunked. <laughs> I tried not to gloat, but, but uh, it, it, it was a weird thing. It was like, whoa, I, I'm not surrounded by all these geniuses. Uh, they're not all that smart. And it, it gave me a reframe. It's I, I just like, maybe there's something to this. And, and I've never, whatever else I've had going on in my life, I've never had that kind of inferiority complex ever since. I had a different frame. Same past experience, same present experience, but had a different frame around it, which gave it an entirely different interpretation. Well, what Jacob had here was a reframing experience. He comes upon a certain place. Nothing special about it. The sun was going down. He wanted to take a nap go to bed for the night, so he finds a nice rock and lays himself down. But with his revelatory dream that he had, he discovered that this ordinary place, this ordinary plot of ground, was no ordinary place and no ordinary plot of ground. Uh, There were angels ascending and descending in this place, and God himself was present in this place. 
He had framed it as an ordinary place, just your average run-of-the-mill place and your average run-of-the-mill rock. But what he discovered was this was a sacred place. It was a holy place. This was the house of God place. This was an awesome place. It was a sanctified place. He had a reframe of his experience. What the passage tells us is that it's possible to be in the presence of angels and possible to be in the presence of God himself. It's possible to be in the house of God. It's possible to stand at the gateway of heaven and yet not know it. Jacob didn't have a clue because he was framing the place in ordinary terms. But when his eyes were opened up, he saw what was really going on, and it totally changed his interpretation of this place. It's possible to be in the presence of angels, presence of God, at the gateway of heaven and not know it. In fact, I believe this is how most of us live most of our lives. Because the Bible tells us later on, in the course of biblical revelation, that it wasn't just this place where God is. Rather, we learned later on that God is present in all places. God is present in all times. God is working in all people, which makes all places and all times and all circumstances and all our encounters with other people sacred places and sacred encounters and sacred circumstances and sacred events going on in our life. Paul talks about this in Acts 17. He's, he's dialoguing with a bunch of philosophers, and he says this. From one man, God made every nation of people that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God, look at, God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps, perhaps reach out for him and perhaps find him, though in fact he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, we are his kids. He never leaves us alone. Paul is saying here this, that in the course of the development and the rise and the fall of nations, all the wars that we fight, God is active. I don't think he unilaterally decides these things, but he's always moving to establish nations, to set parameters about how high they can get, how powerful they can get, what kind of territory they can get. And while the nations, the kings, the soldiers who fight these battles, they're interested in promoting their nation, God isn't interested in the politics of the thing. He's interested in, in working the, the situation to his advantage. And his advantage is to have people somehow search for him, to develop a hunger in their hearts and grope for him and possibly find him, at least insofar as that culture will, will allow the revelation of God to be found. He wants, he's drawing people unto himself. What Paul is saying there is that God is always active. There's never been a nation where God hasn't been active. And there's never been a person on the planet that he didn't create, and who therefore is, is not his offspring, and who therefore he's not working in. He's close to everybody. He's always working behind the scenes, even though we don't usually see it. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the ultimate atmosphere that we breathe. Wherever we go, you can know you're in God. For God is present, tenderly drawing people unto himself, tenderly placing a hunger for him in their heart. In every place and in every time, with every person, God is present, though usually we are too asleep to know it, to see it. We frame our experiences as ordinary. We frame people as ordinary. We frame nations as ordinary. But in fact, none of them are, because God himself is present in that place. David uh, speaks about this when he says that the earth is full. Look at this. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. 
It's not that the earth has a sprinkling of the love of God. It's not that God's love is found a little bit here, but not there, and found a lot there, but just uh, in a little partial bit over there. It's not that God is present in this person, but not in that person. The entire earth is full, packed with the steadfast love of the Lord. God's love surrounds us at every moment like water surrounds a submerged swimmer, always working to lead us insofar as it's possible, insofar as our hearts are open, to, to, to bring us to himself. And this love, David says, is steadfast love. Chesed in Hebrew. Chesed. It means steadfast. It means unwavering. It means unfailing. God's love isn't fickle like human love, which rises and falls based on the behavior of a person or the circumstances you find someone in. God's love is always chesed. It's always perfect, and it continually surrounds us. Which means when we're godly and when things are going well and we're having a good week, God is around us. His love surrounds us like water surrounding a swimmer. But when we're ungodly, you know what? God's love is still surrounding you. And when you're in rebellion, God's love is still surrounding you. When you're chasing after false gods, God's love is still surrounding you. When you're magnificently screwing up your life, God's love is still around you. When you're harming yourself and harming others, that's what sin is. God's love is still surrounding you. You can't outrun it. You can't squish it. You can't thwart it. You can't hide from it because his steadfast love fills the earth. In fact, amen. It goes beyond the earth. It goes beyond the earth. David says this in Psalms 139. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. We expected that much, but now listen to this. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In ancient Hebraic thought, Sheol was the realm of the grave. They conceived it kind of as a, as a dreary, joyless, underworld place. It was the worst place imaginable for an ancient Hebrew at this stage of revelation. But David says, even here, even if I make my bed here, if I make my home here is what he's saying, right in Sheol, you're still there. As much as if I was in heaven. Wherever we find ourselves, however painful the place may be, however dark the place may be, however sinful the place may be, however evil the place may be. And even if that's where you live, that's your neighborhood, you got to know this one thing. God is present there. As much as if you were in heaven, the painful, lifeless, evil situation isn't, isn't created by God's love. It may be created by your own stupidity, or maybe there's someone else's stupidity, or someone's evil heart, or maybe the warfare that we're involved in. Who knows how the situations come about? But what you got to know is however dark and dismal and joyless and painful that situation is, God is present there. That's why the believer can know that, that in all things, God is working together for the better for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God didn't create the situation, but he's in the situation. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You can't go to Sheol and, and run away from him. You can't create a hell of your life and a miserable family life and a rebellious, uh, carnal nature and not have God still around you. His love, his steadfast love, his chesed love fills the entire earth. The question is, can we frame our experience that way? When the cancer strikes, can you include in your frame of reference the steadfast love of God? And when the marriage is falling apart, can you include in your frame of reference the steadfast love of God? When the family is falling apart, when your health is falling apart, when you lose the job, when you feel all alone, when you're drowning in doubt, one thing don't doubt, and that is you haven't outrun the love of God. 
His, he's still present in that place. It feels like Sheol. Feels like hell. But God's love, God's presence is there, and he's working. He's always working. But more often than not, we're more like Jacob before the dream, aren't we? Our frame of reference is just ordinary. Ordinary world, ordinary family, ordinary people. God is present, but we do not know it. We generally see our spaces and moments and encounters as ordinary. We live life half asleep, semi-conscious. Ordinary people with ordinary lives, with ordinary marriages, ordinary problems, ordinary world, and the whole thing becomes quite dull and boring to us. How does that happen? You know, little kids, look at little kids, at least healthy little kids, kids who aren't in a survival mode from the get-go. They, have, they frame everything in their life as new and interesting because it is all new. They have a delight even in the most trivial things. They, they see a wonder and a splendor in things. They're much more awake than most of us adults are. This last summer I was just noticing a couple kids on the uh, playground by my house. And it was just marvelous. There's this little boy and this little girl were like chasing a butterfly. And you would have thought, I mean, it was like that butterfly was worth $20 trillion. And in a sense, the butterfly is. It's a marvelous creation. But they're, they're, they're just having this delight and noticing how the butterfly flies and laughing as they're trying to catch it and, and going this way and that way. But see, to, to, to the adult Greg, it's just a butterfly, not a particularly beautiful one at that. It's an ordinary butterfly. The kids see it as a new creature, a new creation of God, full of wonder and bliss. As we grow up, we get conformed to the pattern of the world where the sameness of things lulls us to sleep. When we say things are ordinary, what we mean is same old, same old. We've seen it before, nothing new about it. We lose that newness of life, which is to say we're losing life. As we grow up, the repetition of mundane things dulls our mind. We, 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 we get trance. We fall into a trance, what I, what I want to call the, a diabolical trance of the ordinary. A diabolical trance of the ordinary. We get used to things. Same old, same old. On top of that, we get conformed to the pattern of the world as we grow up. Never grow up, okay? But as we grow up, we, we, we learn about life and we learn about the problems and, and, and the cares and the jobs and the bills and all the things to worry about. And, and uh, we start living out of the pattern of the world, which is living out of self-centeredness with the goal of meeting our needs. And so everything in the world becomes simply something that we can use or not use to meet needs in our life and in our family and whatnot. And we stop seeing life as it really is. We fall asleep. We're surrounded by light, but we walk, for the most part, in darkness. We're engulfed by life, but we often feel like zombies, don't we? We swim in God's presence every moment, and yet we feel mostly alone. There's wonder all around us, but fantastically, we're often bored. We believe in God, but mostly theoretically. And we love others, but rarely wholeheartedly. And our entire existence is found in this now. But most of our time is spent thinking about the past or dreaming about the future or worrying about the future. The world is full of the steadfast love of God, but we don't know it because we frame it as without God. We frame it as ordinary. And we're missing it. We're missing it. We've fallen into the hypnotic, diabolical trance of the ordinary and it's blinding us to the beauty of life. 
the splendor all around us. It's blinding us, preventing us from experiencing the domain in which God is king, where his mercies are new every morning. What we need is a revelatory dream. Uh, What we need is something to reframe our moment-by-moment experience. What we need is to see all of life through the eyes of Jacob's dream. What we need is to have a frame of reference that expands our awareness of what is real moment-by-moment because part of what is real and the most important aspect of what is real is that there are angels all around us and God is present in this place and there can never be anything boring about that. It's never the same. It gives life. It It gives wonder to everything. We need a reframing experience. Let's start it right now. Right now. This moment. Let's make it a kingdom moment. It looks like this is just an ordinary sermon by an ordinary preacher to an ordinary congregation in an ordinary building. Ah. Au contraire. (laughs) Do you know know that the Bible talks a lot about angels uh, filling the earth, that God is the host of heaven? There's myriads of angels. There's angels in this place. I believe, and I think the scripture suggests that each of us has guardian angels, at least one of them. And they're all around. Look, look right there. Right next to me, there's this angel. Hello, guardian angel. Uh, it, uh, there are angels all around this place. Can you, can you in your mind's eye see that? Uh, right now, ascending and descending during the worship service. I just picture angels up there, you know, dancing up there. I'm a soldier in the army of God. They're all over this place. And it, it, it frames things differently if you remain aware of that. But far more important, God is present in this place. God himself is present in this place. We're swimming in his presence right now. In him we live and move and have our being. The steadfast love of God is pressing in on you right now. More than the air that you breathe, God is right here. Always working to draw you closer. Right now, this is a divine moment. God is here. Can you, can you represent that in your brain? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a representation of that. I, I often kind of see it as, see the Lord as, as sort of fog in a room. He's filling this place. It's full of wonder. It's full of majesty. It's full of glory. God is the dome. This is a dome. This moment is a dome in which God is king, the kingdom of God. If our frame of reference includes God in it, And see the wonder. You wake up to the wonder of what's going on when when, when you grasp that. You exist. Don't get used to that. It's a weird thing. Who would have thought? I exist. I'm up here. I'm real. I'm solid. And I'm talking to you. And now you are starting to think this is a little unusual, aren't you? And here I am, the spirit being, manipulating my brain to pop in certain ways, to jiggle my, my, my vocal cords, to impact the airwaves, which then reverberate into your eardrums, which, which bang your eardrums, which sends an uh, electromagnetic current up your nervous system, which then jiggles your brain, uh, neurons, which you decode as having meaning, and you're doing it right now at one three thousandth of a second. It's fantastic. How can we be bored with that? You know, it, it, it's a, we're in the middle of a miracle here. This is a divine moment. This moment has never been here before and it will never be here again. It's altogether unique. It's glorious. It's wondrous. But we miss the whole thing. Amen. We miss the whole thing. If we frame it as just ordinary, if we know that let the frame of reference for every experience at every moment, every encounter be, be one that includes God and the angels and all that's going on around us. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. When you go out in the gathering area, don't make that an, or, an ordinary leaving of the service with ordinary people around you, just ordinary, and do the ordinary American thing where you're just going to pick up your ordinary kids and think about your own ordinary life and go to eat at an ordinary restaurant. No. You know, you know why, why not? When you go out, 
In fact, let's do this. When you go out, notice people around you. You're surrounded by people who are, each, each person is uniquely and marvelously and wonderfully made. They are offspring of God, the Bible says. They're children, of, they're, they're dignitaries. You know, they're, 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 they're created, personally created by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus died for these people around you just like he died for you. And that means they have infinite worth. They're a treasure that, that, that all the money in the world and all the money in all of history and all the glory of the universe can't compare to. Don't just pass them by. Have a frame of reference where you, you, you capture that, a snapshot. The Polaroid has God all around it. Because when you look at them, God is all around them. Angels are ascending and descending on them. And that makes them no ordinary person. No. They're, they're, they're a sac- this is a sacred thing that's going on here. Uh, you are at the gateway of heaven each and every moment. If your mind is open to that, why not meet one or two people? In fact, I would love it if Woodland Hills got known as the place where it's impossible to visit and not have at least two people come up and greet you. You know, and I'm not just talking about the ushers. I'm talking about us. You go up and say, oh, I, I don't know you. How long have you been going here? And ask a few questions of them. And as you do it, don't just do it as a, because I said so, but notice the glory, the beauty. They have a history. God's been working in their life from the day they were born. And, and, and just appreciate them as you'd appreciate a work of art. Spend some time with them. Next time you embrace your spouse, will you be lulled into the diabolical hypnotic trance of the ordinary? Been married 25 years, had a lot of hugs. Okay, so you do a little, hi, honey. That moment will never come again. Make it, frame it as a kingdom moment. Stay awake. Don't do it in a semi-conscious, robotic, hypnotic way. No, but stay awake. This is, this, this person, this person is, is fearfully and marvelously made, the Bible says. Angels are ascending and descending on your husband or your wife. Uh, they are a unique treasure of God. You may not feel like it all the time, but how lucky you are to be married to them. Maybe you just had an all knock down and drag out fight. It doesn't matter. Frame that as kingdom too, because God's love is even involved in that. And when you hug them, hug them like it's the first and the last time you're ever going to hug them, because for all you know, for all you know, it could be. Life isn't promised to you. Our neighbor, we have a 23-year-old neighbor, died last night. Or no, the night, the night before this last. 23 years old. Brain aneurysm. She was studying. Said, I'm a little tired. I got to go to bed. And she died. The next heartbeat isn't promised to you. Grab this one. <laughs> Grab this one. This one's real. The next one's a possibility. Grab this moment. Hug your spouse. And when your kids come in, in the door, look at them. Don't look through them. See the glory and the wonder that is there. Stay awake. God's all around them. God is loving them. They're so precious, and you're so privileged to have the opportunity to raise them. And oh, I know yucky stuff in life always gets in the way, but see past it. Don't frame them as ordinary. There is no ordinary because it comes from God. And so with all life, when you go to get groceries, are you going to see a grocery clerk or are you going to see a human being? Look at that human being. You know that there are people who go all their life and for the most part feel invisible, just invisible because I'm ordinary and I got nothing to put on display. And so people just look past me. They never make eye contact. They never look deep anyways, even if they do make eye contact. You know, kingdom people, our job is to, to ascribe worth. That's what love is. That's what Jesus does on the cross. You're worth this to me. And so when you're checking groceries out, we have the capacity to double task. You have to look at your groceries, sure. But remain aware that God is present there. Angels are present here. This is a sacred moment, and that is a fearfully and marvelously made human being. Look at them. See the treasure. Cherish that. You know, people can tell when you're really talking to them and looking at them. They, they, they can tell. They, 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 there's like this thing that goes on where they just they experience the worth. 
And it kind of surprises them. And it, it may be that you don't say anything extraordinary, but a lot of times you will if you're walking with this mindset. But just the interaction, you're ascribing worth. Frame that person and this encounter as a house of God encounter, at the gateway of heaven kind of encounter. Stay awake. As you watch the guy fixing the pothole out in the street or the little girl jumping jump rope or, or the people that are driving past you, live in that frame of reference, blessing people, ascribing worth to people, aware of the glory and the wonder of all that is around you. This is about waking up. This is life. Insofar as we do this, and it takes great training and discipleship. I've been working at this for seven years, and I still go entire days where all of a sudden, at the end of it, I remember I didn't wake up. I, 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 I was asleep that day. Now, don't beat yourself up over that. You know, judging yourself doesn't do any more good than judging others. It, it happened. There you go. Learn from it. And now try to stay awake this moment. You can only do this on a moment-by-moment basis. doesn't do any good to resolve that from henceforth you're going to stay awake. Nonsense. Stay awake this moment. And now, now in two minutes from now, stay awake. And as we do, life comes alive. Life comes alive. And now the dome in which God is king begins to be manifest in our life. We begin to experience this this joy that's unspeakable and a peace that passes understanding uh, as, as the love of Christ and the life of Christ begins to flow through us moment by moment, but it only happens in the now. It only happens in the now. We start seeing the world through Jacob's dream. We acquire the eyes of a child and wonder and the playfulness and the freedom. Dying to self each moment, not being centered on yourself, but looking at the world and looking at others as they really are and as they really are is the dome in which God is present. The steadfast love of God fills the earth. See it, see it, see it, breathe it, swim in it. Frame every experience with that included. And unleash the power and the love and the peace of Christ in your life. Can we stand? I want to close in prayer. And I will invite you to come forward. Our prayer team will, if our prayer team will come up here now. If you have any need whatsoever you'd like to join with others to pray for, I encourage you to do that. If you're here this morning and you've never pledged your life to the King of Kings, never surrendered your life to the King of Kings, I encourage you not to leave here in that condition. Uh, but rather come up here and there will be a person to my right, your left, up here on this table, who would be glad to explain to you what that is all about. And as you go out, meet at least one or two people that you don't know before. I know that's pushing us out of our comfort zone, but folks, comfort zones are boring. Uh, it's really boring. Uh, take a walk on the wild side. Meet somebody you don't know. Welcome them. Uh, frame them as the treasure, the pearl that they are. And, and love on them. Let's pray. Father, keep us awake. Holy Spirit, nag us to stay awake, not to fall into the pattern of the world, the pattern of the ordinary, the hypnotic trance of the flesh mind, but rather to just freely, like little children, enjoy and interact with the reality of who you are, in every moment of our life, now, and now, and now, Lord God. Free us from the imprisonment of, of ordinary living, Lord God. Set us free to dance in the wonder of you and the wonder of the angels and the wonder of the angels and the wonder of the creation all around us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go out. Love mightily.